Hello, welcome to this episode of the Sheffield Libraries podcast. I'm Alex, and on this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Emma Smith, author of This Is Shakespeare. The book is irreverent, fun, and deeply knowledgeable, as is Emma herself. I had a great time talking to her, and I certainly went away looking at Shakespeare differently, and perhaps you will too. Please enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Sheffield Libraries podcast, Emma Smith. Thanks so much. I'm really disappointed not to be in Sheffield, but this is the next best thing. Absolutely. And we're just talking about that a little bit. So we're obviously talking, I'm obviously talking to you from Sheffield. You're in Oxford. We're both working from home. And of course, Shakespeare wrote um, or lived through times of pandemic as well. So I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what pandemic life was like for the Elizabethans and how Shakespeare would have dealt with that. Do you know, I've been thinking about this such a lot. I mean, I knew that there were outbreaks of bubonic plague in the uh, Elizabethan and early Jacobean time, and I'd never really, I don't know, it never really connected with me as a, as a useful context for Shakespeare, and I've thought so much about it this summer. It's a really good example of how Shakespeare's plays change for me according to, you know, things that are happening in our world that he couldn't know anything about. So bubonic plague was spread by uh, fleas, rat, rat fleas. So it had a different form of, of um, uh, transmission from, from our own um, pandemic. And really it was just a thing that um, people had to live with or in some cases die with, by which I mean, they, they just had outbreaks of the plague, a plague at a pretty low level, then severe outbreaks, usually in the spring and summer. And then some longer periods, um, there's a period just before Queen Elizabeth dies in 1603, which goes on for the next five or six years, really, with the theatres shut because the plague deaths are high and then open for a few weeks and then shut again because it because, you know, in sort of second waves or third waves or whatever. Um, so I guess it was something you that was always there and you must have found ways of dealing with it. I do still wonder how they managed not to be complete hypochondriacs and sort of checking all the time to see have I got any of these kind of swollen glands in the armpit, these, these kind of sores and stuff. Um, but what Shakespeare seems to have done is to work, keep working, keep work round it. It seems to have, um, uh, early in his career, when the theatres are shut, he turns to write narrative poetry, so he gets a different income stream, I suppose. Um, but later, he seems to have kept with the theatre um, and maybe be sort of stockpiling some plays for when they, new plays for when they when they reopen. And it is really interesting that the theatres do reopen. And that may be because people aren't necessarily afraid of crowds. That's not necessarily how the sort of um, plague takes them. But um, but nevertheless, they, they want to come back and be together. And that's that's that, that feels really quite hopeful for me that, um, that that is what we will want when we stop being so nervous. We'll kind of want to get back to these collective experiences like cinema or theatre or just, you know, just going out, just just going out to the pub in a kind of normal way. So it feels it feels like sort of like over 400 years, not lots has changed overly much in terms of closing down the theatres and everybody hunkers down a little bit. And <laughs> absolutely true. And before, you know, there's, there's um, I've looked at these um, plague publications. So Shakespeare doesn't ever write directly about the plague, but lots of other people are writing um, and publishing stuff and they're publishing stuff about how to 
um, you know, protect yourself from plague and all of this. And until this year, it was possible to look back at that and say, oh God, how quaint, you know, weren't they funny thinking that if you ate this kind of diet or, you know, washed in this kind of um, liquid or something, you would protect yourself. And now you look at, I mean, when you're faced with something and you don't actually really know what, where it's come from, even we, or perhaps especially we, you know, 400 years later, we're still quite susceptible, aren't we, to the sort of, um, you know, fake news or, you know, is this to do with uh, 5G or where, you know, was this made on purpose? You know, those kind of conspiracies, they spread just as they did 400 years ago. And that's been good for me to, to realise that we shouldn't patronise the past in a way, because when, when we see the comparisons, it's not always to our favour. <laughs> Thank you. And um, your book, This is Shakespeare, uh, is your own unique look at um, Shakespeare and what he means or perhaps what he doesn't mean. Uh, how did that book come to um, come about? Because it wasn't quite as simple as... Uh, prominent academic gets a book contract. Did it start as some podcasts and go from there? Yeah, absolutely. It started as lectures that I gave to our students here in Oxford. And um, the first of those were quite early on when Apple was developing podcasts and developing sort of university content and stuff. And they asked the university if they were interested in sort of piloting that. And I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting. I didn't think anybody would listen to them other than my own students, but that they might find it a bit more convenient to hear them in their own time. And then, um, you know, there's a, I hadn't quite realized, I suppose, what a big appetite there is for Shakespeare stuff, for Shakespeare stuff online. And um, they, the, the podcasts were a real big success in terms of numbers. Um, downloaded they've been downloaded about 800,000 times I think now which is just you know if you write an academic book you might get I don't know a thousand copies printed or something you know it's a completely so it's completely like rock star for, 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 for me um, rock star numbers so it's been, been fantastic but then Penguin said did I want to write them as a book and I was it was interesting I, I wasn't too in a way I wasn't too keen because I thought well these are already out there um, but it was fun rewriting for the book uh, and revisiting some of them. Uh, and it's been great sort of having the chance to talk to people about it since it's come out. And are you surprised that there's still that appetite for Shakespeare then? Because um, in the book, you write quite irreverently about Shakespeare. Like, I think it's the first sort of like book where the first page we've got blah, blah, blah on it, for example, in that sort of... Uh, academic so in an academic setting but it's it's not really an academic book as such is it um no, sorry no, I was I was trying to I suppose it comes out of stuff I've done quite a lot of talks in theatres and talks in libraries and talks in schools actually which I've really enjoyed and I've enjoyed what people are asking and how they're approaching Shakespeare in different contexts, somewhere they've got to do it, like at school, and somewhere they've chosen to do it, like going, you know, going to the theatre. Um, and that's made me think, it's been really good for me as an academic. Quite often academics um, tend to assume that their main audience is other academics. And that, that's never really sat so well with me, and I've really benefited such a lot from um, from talking, talking with people who've got all kinds of insights into these works. So um, I wanted to write for that more general audience. And also 
to say sometimes, you know, not all of Shakespeare is brilliant. Not all of, we don't have to be completely reverent to Shakespeare. You know, it's not like a God or something. Um, sometimes some bits of it are boring. Um, <laughs> it's all right to cut Shakespeare. In fact, I think it's a really good idea to cut, to cut it. Um, you know, those, those kinds of things. So I thought I could maybe blow away a few cobwebs. That's fantastic. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the title. So I read it as this is Shakespeare. It's quite a bold, definitive title, um, almost macho to a certain degree, like you're really putting a flag in the um, ground um, for your book. But actually, when you're reading the book, the book's almost sort of like saying the opposite to me um, in terms of this isn't Shakespeare almost. So how did you come about that title? Was it, was it, is it kind of like, a, is, is it a playful thing deliberately or am I just misreading? <laughs> no, Alex, you're absolutely right. I mean, in a way that the title, so the title came in conversation with the publishers and they wanted a strong title and it is a strong title. We had a big argument about whether is had a capital I um, and whether you were stressing is or whether you were stressing this or Shakespeare. I was always, I've always been a little bit uncertain about it um, because it's a bit too emphatic. And one of the things, when I try and gloss what, what, what the title means for me in the book, I say um, Shakespeare, the Shakespeare that this is, is more um, kind of multi-sided, more ambiguous, more gappy. This, this, the word that I use throughout the book has, has got more sort of space in it and more uncertainties and that's the space for us or for directors or for different people at different times to kind of insert their own experience of the world. Yeah and that's kind of was going to be my next question so I think one of the big one of the big run-throughs of um, the book is the idea of gappiness um, that you say, which isn't sort of like a, a term that I've been familiar with before. Would you be able to talk about that a bit more and just explain what it means and maybe in terms of Shakespeare and how that works? Yeah, brilliant. I mean, it isn't a proper term. Uh, it's not It's not like a technical term. I was trying to think about, um, sometimes, sometimes when I've talked about it, people have come back at me with a much more elaborate kind of a Greek term or... Um, uh, people like a thing um, from uh, the poet Keats and they think he's kind of similar and they all seem a bit artificial to me in a way and because what, what I just wanted to say was I don't think Shakespeare is complete so I don't think Shakespeare's got all the answers I think um, in order to make sense of Shakespeare we have to uh, kind of participate with him or get, get alongside him and fill in some of those gaps with our own interpretations. And those interpretations are different at different times. So I mean that there are gaps about motivation and stuff. If you ask, why does this character do this? Um, it's sometimes really difficult to answer that question. And, um, and in fact, the different possible answers or what's interesting about the play, or you say, more practically, what does this character do at this moment? There are not very many stage directions in Shakespeare's plays. And so uh, I talk a bit about the end of The Taming of the Shrew, where um, Petruchio says to his uh, new wife, Catherine, a really famous line, um, uh, come on and kiss me, Kate. And theirs is a very difficult 
relationship and a very unequal relationship, and that's what the play has been about. That's almost the last, it's the last but one line of the play, but there's no stage direction to know whether they do or don't. And so I was trying to say that's a kind of a gap, and it's a gap that if you were a director or an actor, you would you would want to think about and think what what does this mean for, for, for us for us now. So I hoped it would be a kind of enabling thing rather than um, what we sometimes get from sort of Shakespeare at school or, or Shakespeare in other parts of culture is a sense that um, we're trying to decipher what Shakespeare means and there is the meaning there but it's locked up in this really difficult language and we've got to work really hard to get it out. I was thinking I don't think that's not how I see Shakespeare at all I think it's a more more open more open than that. Yeah, the Taming of the Shrew is a really good example um, I picked up on that one just because I did that for a level sort of back in the dark ages and um when we did that it was a very sort of like set way of um this is what this play means and in this speech they mean that but it strikes me that the taming of the shrew itself is very sort of like ambiguous and almost depends on how it is played on stage or how a, how a director or actors interpret it yeah, completely. Um, when I when I started the lectures that um, that were the, the sort of genesis of this book, um, I used to begin each lecture with a kind of uh, just a synopsis of what the play was about. So I wasn't assuming that people already sort of knew it in a lot of detail. And I really found it impossible to make a synopsis of The Taming of the Shrew because, um, you know, whether you say uh, this is a story about how a wife tamer uh, subdues his um, kind of feisty wife and breaks her spirit, or whether you say this is about two idiosyncratic kind of crazy uh, types meet each other and they kind of challenge social expectations, or whether you say she's a woman who continues with her own um, secret kind of defiance, you know, irrespective of what he and her father um, want. Um, you know, that's they're, they're completely different plays and they're all possible, um, but you can't even necessarily agree on a sort of outline of what the play is and then say, okay, let's talk about the twiddly bits. It's not the twiddly bits in Tell Me the True, it's the actual basis of what, what you think this play is about and how you talk about it. Yeah, it's a great example of the gaps. Uh, the other one I was really interested in asking you about was um, A Midsummer Night's Dream because I've got a, a, a young son and um, CBeebies do a version of A Midsummer Night's Dream and it's all great fun. And we have uh, Mr. Tumble is bottom and all the characters and it's um, quite twinkly and smiley and safe. But you argue that uh, that is a that A Midsummer Night's Dream is actually something really quite different to that. Could you talk about that a little bit for me? Because I found yeah, that was a really interesting way to look at A Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream. And it really had me sat there thinking, oh yeah, okay, that's, you had me completely convinced. <laughs> oh, well that, that's, I mean, it, it is a play that's really uh, great for children. It's often the play that parts of which uh, children uh, do, you know, the kind of fairy speeches or the, the kind of magic of Puck or something. I've been to productions which have been really magical and really um, had a lot, lots of children in the audience and, and, and they've really, really enjoyed it. So I don't sort of want to take that away, but I suppose what I was trying to think about was um, Midsummer Night's Dream as a play for grown-ups. 
And there's one picture of Robin Goodfellow, who's the Puck character, the mischievous character uh, in uh, in Summer Night's Dream. There's one contemporary illustration of him. And I mean, it's very, very unsuitable for children. Um, uh, he's like a kind of fertility figure, let's just say, let's, let, let's spare everybody's blushes. Um, but it's a very um, adult theme, it's adult content. And that made me think again about um, the sort of, uh, the circulations of sex and desire in the play and how very um, uh, kind of risque they are. You know, Titania falls in love with Bottom uh, dressed, who's got a, a donkey's head on and she takes him back to her bower. And there's, since the Victorian period, there's been sort of sweet illustrations of him uh, there and having his ears stroked or something. And I just think the Queen of the Fairies and the, this kind of man, donkey man, I don't think they're going to be stroking in the, you know, stroking with flowers. I don't think that's what's going on in, in the play. And I think when Bottom wakes up and, and, and realises and sort of remembers what's happened, um, he's thinking of something... Um, a, a bit more active than that. So I started to think about lots of ways in which the play um, looks as if it might be about romantic love, but is actually much more, is a bit darker than that and is about um, the complexities and the painfulness and the embarrassment and the waywardness of desire rather than the, the more symmetrical he, he, he's with her and she's with him and then they'll all get together at the end and, and it will all be fine. Yeah, because it's almost not even that bothered about the main romantic plot. You made the point well and I, I was sort of like punching the air when you made it in terms of the, the lovers in A Midsummer Night's Dream were actually quite difficult to tell apart and I just thought that was me <laughs> so it was really nice to see somebody else sort of like making that point when I can, can't remember which is which <laughs> and you know I made it so well that even that I did not intend to do this but I mixed in the first printing I mixed them up and people kept writing to say I can't believe you're supposed to be a professor of Shakespeare and you said that it and it's so obvious and you know you get a block about things don't you when people keep telling you you got you keep getting something wrong and then people keep telling you and you just can't remember and I still can't remember which way it ran <laughs> I did correct it for the but I'd have to look it up uh was it was it it was uh Hermia and it must have been that she was wanted to marry Demetrius I think it's that or is it the other way around mm, I don't know I don't know you could but, but, I, but I was trying to say yeah, what I was trying to say in that, I mean, there was a serious, sort of more serious point to that, which you, which you already mentioned, was that uh, it's really funny that Shakespeare, who's so good at characterization and at making people, giving just people little snippets of backstory or something that makes them seem very real, these are just out of central casting. They're just romantic leads or boy band kind of men and these kind of women. They're not that. That they all that they are they're all the same in some way, and I think that's I think that's sort of deliberate. No, that's really, really interesting. Thank you. Um, and you said sort of like that, uh, like schools tend to use that one to introduce Shakespeare to um, kids, etc. Is Are schools the best place for learning about Shakespeare, do you think? Because it feels almost that the book is arguing, not necessarily arguing, but sort of like it's taking a, a step away from sort of like that 
traditional teaching environment where you look where we all read a page and then we then the teacher tells us exactly what it's about and then we go from there i get the i don't know if i'm putting words into your pages but i get the feeling that you don't necessarily think that's a helpful way to learn do you think there's a better way to experience shakespeare for the first time i think a lot of people a lot, a lot of schools now and a lot of classrooms do shakespeare really well they do shakespeare more through performance they don't necessarily start at the beginning they start with a a sort of central dramatic scene or a kind of relationship or, or a bit of language um, uh, that, that people can sort of get their teeth into. So I, th I do think that reading, um, we, we did that, that was my first experience of Shakespeare was Twelfth Night in, in my, uh, in Manston Middle School in Leeds, Mr. Taylor made us read round the class, the first scene, and we were just, I mean, we were hopeless at it. We would read, um, you know, read the speech prefixes beforehand and then read the stage directions and then couldn't pronounce things. And then he would stay and, and then he would explain why something was funny. And I just thought, oh, God, this is torture, absolute torture. I don't think that's, I mean, it, it, that's not what most classrooms are like now. But I think for a lot of people who read the book, um, they do feel that their school experience was not didn't 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 make them feel uh, confident with Shakespeare, or didn't make them feel very engaged by it. Okay, so one of my favourite lines from the book, one that I found like really quite refreshing, um, and it's partly I think because you write in a sort of like a, a really nice informal style that. Um, draws you in and makes you feel interested but you say I don't really care what Shakespeare meant and nor should you um, but could you just talk about that it, like and there's obviously a big um, Shakespeare industry in capital letters um, and I guess like why should we not care about what Shakespeare meant is the question I'm coming at sort of like in a very long-winded fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's a really important question I, I suppose I think uh, in, a, in one way, it's a, it's a practical response to the fact that we don't, we don't know what Shakespeare meant apart from these plays. That's what we've got. That's our evidence. So he's not like a modern writer who is, you know, who's done an interview or who's done a retrospective introduction to their reprints or who, you know, has written an essay for this, you know, for a magazine or something. There's no other evidence. There's nothing else other than these plays. And as we've already been saying, what these plays seem to me to, to, to reveal is lots of different interpretive possibilities rather than a single one. And I suppose the one kind of Shakespeare criticism that I'm trying to get away from or give people permission to get away from is that sense that um, these plays are a kind of code and if we can crack the code we will understand what what, what was intended. I don't think they're a code. I think they're more like a kind of, well, it depends. You could, you, you could choose your metaphor or you could, you, they're more like a musical score or they're more like, you know, a kind of, I don't know, paint chart or something. I mean, they're a sort of set of possibilities or a set of, um, yeah, a, a kind of set of parameters maybe. Uh, rather than a code which you can which you can unlock. So, you know, back to our example of Taming of the Shrew. I mean, how how could we work out what Shakespeare intended? I guess you know, for some people, it would have been it would be trying to work out what 
what we think Shakespeare's relationship to his own wife was. Well, we haven't got very much evidence about that either. And you can take that in different ways. You could take that in the um, upstart crow way, if you've seen that, um, if you've seen that comedy series where um, Shakespeare's wife is much more sensible, insightful, you know, her own woman. Um, uh, but they're actually quite a close couple. You can take it, you know, you take, so you, you could you could try and work that out or you could work out, you know, what do people, what do people think about um, proper relationships between husbands and wives? You'd look at different kind of evidence, but I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think it's possible to know. And what seems more interesting to me is not what did these plays mean when Shakespeare wrote them, but what do they mean now? Why, why are we still performing them? they're not museum pieces, or they certainly shouldn't be, we're still performing them because in some way, we still haven't sorted out relationships between men and women uh, for, in Taming the Shrew, or we still haven't sorted out the kind of racial dynamics that, that Shakespeare's writing about in Othello. Um, you know, the, these, are, these are still, we still haven't decided whether the, it was right to kill Julius Caesar in, 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 in that play. So, so, it's partly that we can't know what Shakespeare intended, so this is a long answer to your long question, I guess. And it's partly that it doesn't matter because what matters now is what do we what do we intend? Thank you very much. Um, I've got some almost sort of like quite silly quick fire questions just Brilliant. to start rounding off some of these interviews. Not necessarily quick fire, but um, just slight slightly less in depth now. Um, so. What is it that you like best about Shakespeare? The fact that it keeps changing, that it was written 400 years ago, but that you can go to a different production, see something differently, um, experience what we're experiencing, all experiencing now and see the plays differently. So I've been thinking a lot about Measure for Measure, which I thought I knew well, it was one of my A-level plays. And uh, I thought it was about you know, sex and morality and justice. And now I think it's more about how do you live in an urban environment with an ever-present disease? <laughs> that feels to me a play about the plague. And I've never <laughs> seen it before. So that's what I love about it, that it's always it's always changing. Yeah, um, okay, thank you. Um, it's almost sounds silly, bearing in mind some of the um, over-the-top idolatry of him and the mass scrutiny of Shakespeare that we've had over at least 300 years. But is there a play that you would say that was underrated? That we don't pay enough attention to perhaps? Um, do you know, different plays have their moment at different times. Um, so for example, Shakespeare writes a quite a sort of sardonic kind of satirical play about the Trojan War called Troilus and Cressida. And nobody really knew what to make of it and what he was getting at. And, um, and, and it, it, it comes back into the performance repertoire around the time of the Vietnam War in America. And suddenly it seems like a play which understands the sort of awful pointlessness of a war. You, know, you don't quite know why you're fighting it. You don't quite know who's supposed to win. And it's just sort of taking up energy and time for no real reason. So, so I guess that's that's to say, you know, plays that are underrated usually uh, they have their moment. Um, 
Uh, I think some of the early comedies are underrated. I like Comedy of Errors very much. Um, often seems like a, a farce with two sets of twins and it's got that rapid, um, slightly, um, I don't know, kind of Harold Lloyd sort of quality. You could imagine it with trick photography where they're all Harold Lloyd or something. Um, but it's also got some quite, yeah, some more kind of serious elements too. I'll have to go back to that because I always have a trouble with uh, some of the comedies. It always feels to me like if you if you're sitting in there, you wait you're waiting to sort of like laugh at the joke because it says in your textbook that that's when you're supposed to laugh and this is funny because. But that's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, and a chance to sort of like maybe slaughter some sacred cows. Um, what irritates you about Shakespeare? What's what's what what about him isn't perfect? What do you think is sort of like can sort of like really you could do without almost yeah actually you know how long have you got because there's loads of things <laughs> I'll, try and, I'll try and um uh so i think act four i think shakespeare is really bad at act four he's good at beginnings he's good at endings act four is treading water and you know it is because if you ever go to a shakespeare play it's the time when you're kind of shifting in your seat and you're trying to get a look at your watch and it's always about 10 past nine and you think, oh God, there's ages yet. There's gonna be about another hour of this. We all know how it's gonna work out, but there's still, Act 4, I don't think he's very good at. Maybe that was the time in the Elizabethan theater where everybody went and got a drink or something. And, and you just, you know, you just sort of playing for time. Um, like you, I find the comedies sometimes a bit difficult. I'm not so, I'm not so, hey, nonny, no, kind of. Um, uh, I, I don't talk about as you like it in the in the book because I don't much like it actually. And and, and although liking plays is not it's not the only things. Um, uh, I don't. I find it a bit a bit of a drag in the theatre. There's not not enough happens for me. Um, yeah. So so there's yeah. There's lots of lots of things. I think um, there's lots of things where I think you know adaptations of Shakespeare or rewrites of Shakespeare actually do certain bits better than the the originals do. I think there are lots of ways in which. Um, Baz Luhrmann's film of Romeo and Juliet is kind of better than Romeo and Juliet. And that's, I know that's the wrong way around and we're supposed to think that they're all derivative, but. No, that's fantastic. Uh, and just finally, uh, what's next for yourself? Have you got any more books in mind? Anything that you want to explore, whether it's Shakespeare or perhaps um, around that time? Yeah, so I'm doing, um, my academic work at the moment is about one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, there's a man called Thomas Nash. Um, and Nash wrote um, a great plague play, actually. I didn't know when I was gonna be uh, working on it that this would all happen, called Summer's Last Will and Testament. So I'm editing that and we're trying to work out what all the jokes mean and what all the references mean, which is quite different. For Shakespeare, there's a long tradition of that and you can look back you know, centuries where people have found out and ferreted out bits of information. It's interesting to do that for a play uh, where we don't uh, where we don't know uh, that much. And um, yeah, I think the next book I'm going to write is going to be actually about books rather than plays. Um, I've got a title which is from um, uh, an essay by Stephen King where he calls books portable magic. And I want to think about the kind of portable magic. So maybe that'll be out We'll, we'll all be back open, Alex, and I can come to Sheffield long delayed. We can talk about books together. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Emma Smith, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Sheffield Libraries podcast. Thank you.
thanks to Emma for a great conversation. And This Is Shakespeare is available now, and it's a really fun and fresh look at Shakespeare and his plays. Thank you for listening, and hopefully we'll be hearing again from you soon. Thank you.